You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Today's episode of the Transformative Podcast is with Jan Surman, who joins us from Prague, where he works at the Masaryk Institute and Archives of the Czech Academy of Sciences, and where he is a prestigious Lumina Fellow. He's the author of Universities in Imperial Austria, 1848 until 1918, a social history of a multilingual space, and a forthcoming article with Daria Petushkova on Central and Eastern European academia during the transformation in the 1990s, which I hope we can talk about a bit today. So thank you very much for joining me, Jan. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This paper, which is forthcoming, is one in which you argue that perhaps in Central and Eastern Europe, academia, following the revolutions around this region, changed perhaps surprisingly little. Why would we perhaps assume that academia would change after 1989 and throughout the 1990s? We would assume it because we know mostly scholars who are excellent scholars at institutions which either changed a lot or institutions which appeared in the 90s. For example, Higher School of Economics, Mohelanka in Ukraine, CEU. So this is, this is how we imagine the Central and Eastern Europe to have progressed. And what we don't see is actually a number of universities which, which didn't change. So when we are speaking about that there is a transformation, we always we have the image coming from the elite institutions, but we have to acknowledge that there is a 90% of institutions which didn't change that much. So this is exactly what we are trying to do, to make kind of a broader view of what changed, what didn't change, and make this kind of geographical distinctions visible also. So in the region of Central and Eastern Europe, it seems to me that you're actively including both Austria and some of the post-Yugoslav states. Can I ask you a little bit about your decision to do so and what sort of trends then you find kind of across this region? What we didn't want to do is to have this bipolar world when there is an East and West. We have to show that the trends we are discussing are actually happening elsewhere also. For example, because we have also in Eastern Europe, also in Austria, and also in Yugoslavia, we have the early discussions about Bologna, which then you know, culminate in the, in the end of the 90s and in the 2000s. And this is already what changes the system. And it changes the system, maybe not in a very similar way in Austria and, and for example, Poland, but we have to look at both not to have a kind of essentializing idea of post-Soviet space. So now to those trends that you do detect spanning this region, can you more or less sort of sum up what they are? So there is a uh, narrative trend of trying to get back to a development which was broken through the socialist times. So it's like kind of what we did describe as traditionalism, which is like every country has imagined its own glorious history before the Soviets came. For example, in Czechoslovakia, it is interwar period or sometimes it's Komensky. Uh, Jan Amos Komensky. In uh, Poland, it is sometimes 19th century, sometimes even earlier, depending on also which universities imagine the past. And they are trying to reaffirm that the developments from this time should be now continued. And the second thing is the way of selective importation of uh, models from abroad. There is a discussion about westernization, but I would be more cautious about it and speak about appropriation of models because it's not a you know one-one translation it is always appropriation although the institutions which are providing money they are trying to have a 
more thorough westernization. There is some kind of discussion about lack of reflexivity on their end. They want really to the Eastern European universities to become Western. And the Eastern European universities, they're much more flexible about what Western is and also imagining their own Western. The very composition of sciences, of scientific landscape is changing. The most brutal cut is the institutions. So the in, during the, the socialist times, the Academy of Sciences is controlling the, the whole academic system. And there is a lot of research institutes which are linked to the industry. And this disappears completely in the 90s. They got privatized, so they are not part of the academia anymore. Which also then means that statistically, like one fourth of the academia is kind of disappearing. Of course, people are losing their jobs, sometimes, sometimes not. But in any case, the academic system is changing. Universities have now research divisions. Depending on the country, mostly the Academy of Sciences had the research. Uh, and universities were rather the teaching facilities. And now this becomes mixed. This process is actually ongoing. And if you look, for example, at Russia or at also Ukraine, then it actually process which didn't stop in the 90s. It's a process which it will be still ongoing for the next 20, 30 years. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about the groups of people, the types of people and the subjects that disappeared and perhaps what a kind of focus on them further in your research might do to change the picture of the transformation of the academy after 1989? There is actually a number of different ways people and topics disappear. So the most known ways of disappearing people is people getting fired or and this is actually what is happening quite often, is people getting to the private industry from scholarship. And this happens not only to people in natural sciences, as we would assume, but also quite a lot of philosophers and sociologists are going into you know, management. Because also there is where the money is. Of course, the money in the academia is non-existent in the 90s. And these people, we don't know the academia transformation story through the prism of their experience. There is a disappearance of Marxism-Leninism, but interestingly, the people who are teaching Marxism-Leninism stayed in the academia. They were doing, for example, cultural sciences. So this is like the origin of cultural sciences in Germany. It is also origin of cultural sciences in post-Soviet Russia. In Poland, they went to political sciences and to sociology. So they just simply started doing other things. Sometimes we find in critical interviews about the time that they were actually like rewriting their biographies. In order to survive in the socialist academia, they had to do Marxist-Leninism, and now finally they, they can do what they always wanted to do. Whether we believe these stories or not, it's another thing. And the third disappearance is a disappearance of theoretical approaches. This is a thesis which we voice in our article. We are not really sure whether it will hold. So far, people are getting angry at it, but they are <laughs> not really good at disproving it is that for many reasons, for example, in historiography, we have turned to positivistic historiography. In sociology, we have the trend to data-oriented uh, sociology, so basically uh, quantitative sociology. And people working theoretically are actually slowly disappearing. And disciplines which were very theory-oriented, like, for example, uh, philosophy of sciences or sociology of science are completely disappearing. What we are trying to do is to by telling this about these disappearances and giving examples of uh, you know voices of the disappeared, not to write a history of the academia as we can read in the books from the 90s and 2000s that you know bad Marxist scholars had to leave the academia because this is actually what what many historiographies are saying. 
So our view tries to be differentiated. One thing you suggest that doesn't disappear, which I find really interesting, is lots of former Eastern Bloc networks and scientific networks based upon trust of each other. Again, maybe this is surprising because of the literature that comes out in the 90s saying that much from the East is not trustworthy, it's not scientific, etc. Can you talk a little bit about the endurance of these scientific networks and perhaps whether you find the kind of hierarchies within them shifting behind what looks like a kind of continuity of cooperation. We have a lot of research showing that the reorganization is happening, and especially in the natural sciences, which kind of makes sense because the tools and instruments are, of course, much easier to get from the West. The Soviet Union was, in a way, technologically backwards already in the, the 70s and the 80s. But in the humanities, that's not the case. And depending on the discipline, you see a lot of continuities. Still, people publishing in Russian, because this is exactly the language they know. I mean, not everybody can change the foreign language he or she speaks in the 90s within a month. And this is actually up until now. And you have, of course, contacts and friendships. And also you have the third thing, and this is that the experience is similar. Also the experience of adoption of models, experience of transformation. And this is what one of the Shoros programs is aiming at, this East program, which is trying to link universities from the East with each other so that they can profit from each other's experience. So basically what the program is saying is that we cannot simply take an experience from whatever France or, or the United States and translate it into Poland or whatever but that we have a process of adoption, of discussion, and uh, also there is a you know, best practice from Baltic countries, which is adopted in Romania. This is, for example, one of the examples which we know that it happened. You have used in the title of this article, as it currently stands, the term transformation, but I wanted to ask you about what you think you are witnessing when you look at the academia at this time. Is this a question of partial transformation, failed transformation, people kind of talking the talk, speaking transformation, I suppose. Is transformation even a really very helpful term to refer to academia in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1990s? We can use a lot of different terms. We can use transformation, we can use transition, we can use change. Uh, The only term we cannot use is revolution. Unfortunately, this is a term which you actually find in the literature about academia. Yes, people are talking about revolution and about drastic change that was happening in the 90s. But then if you look at what's happened really, then it's much slower. So this is why we choose transition, but we also define that the transition is an ongoing process. The transition is not done. So even modeling from the 90s was speaking about transition, which will take two, three generations, more or less 60 years. Uh, So this is what we understand as transition. It's a process. And of course, the article was finished before the war. Now we have the war and Russia actually exited the Bologna system. So the transition has different turns also in different countries. We are talking about transition, not in a very orthodox way that we really say what transition is. It is also very important for us to say that the transition, it's not this kind of process like a modernization process from point A to B. It is a process which goes in a certain direction, but it happens really variously. You have a push into a certain direction, but where it will lead you is actually quite of open-end. So this is what we understand as transition. So thinking transhistorically, because your big monograph is on this, these very last years of the Habsburg Empire, I mean, do you see comparisons? Is it comparable, the academia or academia at this moment, 1918 and 1989? Or are these two moments rather characterised, do you think, by their differences? Like, have, have your past studies in any way kind of helped you approach what is going on in this 1989-1990 moment? 
I think that what I learned from my dissertation and one, what is very similar for the transformation in the 90s is that academia is not changing fast. It's always a slow process, but academia tends to speak about this process as a super fast process. This kind of internal conflict between rhetoric and practice is something that is very similar across history. And my last question is, to what extent do you think we can take the university as a microcosm for broader society in these historical moments? Are there some specialties, meaning that what is happening in academia is not transferable to society at large? Or actually, do you think that what you're finding kind of would hold true in many institutions in Czechoslovakia and Poland around about 1990, 1991? I would say that rhetorics will be very similar because, of course, the universities are taking the narrative structures from the general discussion and also they have to talk to politicians. So this is why they're picking up on this kind of liberalization and neoliberalization rhetoric. But I suppose that apart from it, it's slower as a transformative process. This is the, the main difference, how I imagine that the academia tends to be uh, slower and saying that you know we need more time to transform. So you, you cannot do something in the academia that you do with companies that you fire all the people. The problem is that you actually have to teach students all the time. And there should be a growing number of students to meet the new uh, OECD regulatives. Even if you are firing people, you have to rehire them because someone has to be teaching. There is a, something different than what's happening in the industry. At least how I experience it, for example, in Poland, where you have the much more drastic change. This is why I wouldn't be trying to translate the experience of the academia one-one to the society. But structurally, it will be similar. All right. Thank you very much, Jan. And that's all for today. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by RedZet in Vienna. Wir sind das Volk! Wir sind das Volk!